0: should shine on them and so Jesus says they're blinded they can't see what they're doing this this compassion in the first statement of Jesus you know in the Nuremberg trials after uh, the holocaust and after world war ii uh, some of the low-level organizers one in particular tried to claim that they were just following orders Uh, to remind you right the holocaust the atrocities the murders uh, one person said, "No, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just following orders." They didn't buy it. Uh, they were executed along with everyone else. And so Jesus here is not giving anyone a free pass. Oh, they don't know, you know? No, he he's he's talking about the depth, the depth of what is happening. If they understood the spiritual ramifications, the depth of what is going on, they could not continue to do this. But Father, forgive them because they don't know. They can't see or behold or really perceive what they are doing and with this Jesus um, he sets the tone for everything that's about to happen right he sets the tone oh how's Jesus feeling when he cries out God you've forsaken me what's Jesus thinking when he says it's finished he's thinking God please forgive them you, you can almost imagine, with every other phrase you're going to hear tonight, God, please forgive them. God, why have you forsaken them? Forsaken me. God, please forgive them. I'm so thirsty. God, please forgive them. He sets the tone. He sets the stage. He sets the foundation for everything else that is going to happen. And with this, we think, or I think, do we, do I apply that to my life? Right? And I have scriptures here. I'll read through Um A couple of them quickly. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's heavy stuff. Mark chapter 11, verses 25-26. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. And then it repeats, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father In heaven, forgive your trespasses. And again, I'm talking to myself as much as anyone else here. After Jesus starting this way, after all that Jesus has done, how dare I, how dare we, how dare you withhold forgiveness from anyone? Refuse to forgive your spouse, your mom, your dad, your friend, your brother or sister in Christ, your pastor, your church leader, your coworker, your boss. How dare I? And I do that, and we do that. And so I just pray, I pray that next time that we want to hold a grudge, that we want to stay frustrated, that we want to win an argument, that we would realize that Jesus could have won this argument real quick. But instead, he started and finished the argument, or lack of argument, with, Father, forgive them, they don't really see.
1: Uh, Good evening, my name is uh, Chad, and we're going to pick up the story um, in Luke chapter 23, verse 35, and uh, let me open up in a brief word of prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for everybody who's here right now, God, just speak to them, speak through me, Lord, have your way in our lives, in Jesus' name, amen. And so Christ's second statement on the cross comes from the interaction he has with one of the two thieves that are being crucified on either side of him. And so now reading from Luke chapter 23, verse 35. And the people stood looking on, and even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews." Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. In Luke 23, 39, this must have been a culmination of the insults that had been going on for minutes, if not hours. In verse 40, which we'll read, the other criminal rebukes the first one for blaspheming Christ. Yet we know from the other gospel accounts in Matthew and Mark, both criminals were insulting Jesus at some point. Different versions of those Gospels render phrases about both thieves like they reviled him, reproached him, speaking abusively, harshly, and insolently. Yet at some point, for some reason, for the second thief, the mocking stopped. And in verse 40 and 41, he rebukes the first thief saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, But this man has done nothing wrong. And at at what point did the one criminal realize, not only are we wasting our breath, but we shouldn't be making fun of this man. We don't know a lot about this criminal, not even his name. The Bible uses three different adjectives in the four gospels for this guy, robber, criminal, and transgressor. He may have known about Jesus or being imprisoned, he may have known very little about Jesus until that day. If he didn't know much about Jesus, one striking thing is the insults being hurled at Jesus by the chief priests, scribes, and rulers. These aren't your typical public execution insults. Historically, at public executions, the vitriol toward the criminal would be vengeance for the victims of the crimes or how the criminal's been cut down to size. Instead, we hear phrases like, you saved others. He saved others. Save yourself. That doesn't sound like a crime saving others. Or equally disturbing, save yourself if you're the Christ. Above Jesus' head is a sign that reads, King of the Jews. That may seem laughable at first, looking at Jesus in the state he's in. Not as laughable as Jesus says the impossible, Father, forgive them. Or as he displays the fortitude to not even respond to their insults. As a middle school teacher for 20-some years, I've witnessed a lot of insults. And it is never fun for the insulter if the victim never responds. Also, the case of the insulter is always weakened when the victim doesn't respond. Usually you hear responses from the victim, phrases like, I'm not scared, or I don't care what others think, signaling to everybody you're scared and cared what everyone thinks. As the minutes drag on at Calvary, there are only two teams forming. Which team would one want to be on? The sarcastic, cynical, mockers, scoffing team, or the side with someone who saved others and says, Father, forgive them. Now the man the Bible Bible only refers to as a thief, criminal, and transgressor, who has perhaps made a lifetime of poor choices, a man who has probably disappointed everyone who's ever cared about him, a guy whose lifetime of achievement leaves him completely destitute on a cross. He is faced with a decision and with limited information at that. Without even having all the facts or having all the understanding, Only one side makes sense. In verse 41, he says, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong, implying we deserve all this harshness, pain, humiliation. We deserve this punishment. I've heard every bit of it, but this guy is innocent. All he seems to be accused of is saving others and saying he's king, and based on the character of his accusers, I'm starting to think he's right. In verse 42, the thief said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Just remember me. Here is a guy, as far as we can tell, never saw Jesus perform a miracle healing or feed the 5,000. The Jesus he sees, his physical appearance, is beyond human recognition. Yet he identifies Jesus as Lord and a simple remember me when you come into your kingdom. I wonder what kind of response he was expecting. After making fun of Jesus a little earlier, no response wouldn't be out of the question, or maybe just a simple head nod. But when we come to Jesus as humble sinners and bring him nothing but our willingness to repent, Jesus never disappoints. He always exceeds anyone's expectation. I picture Jesus probably straining to turn his neck and looking at the thief right in the eye as he says the second statement from the cross in verse 43. "'Assuredly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise.'" There is so much implication in that phrase, "'Today, you will be with me in paradise.'" Today, meaning this pain and suffering, is going to be over very soon. The end of this here is the beginning of paradise, bliss, joy unspeakable, happiness eternal. And not just you'll be in paradise, you'll be with me in paradise.'" Everyone at times feels lonely, unaccepted, or rejected. No doubt this thief did. That will end today too. A guy may have never amounted to anything on earth, just hitched his ride to a winner. Jesus says, we're about to get out of here, you and me. That's all he needed. No questions necessary. No, tell me more about paradise, or are you sure today, or what time today, as the excruciating seconds dragged by. Nope, no more talk. Though dying, he's now more alive than he's ever been. As he witnesses the sky becoming dark in the middle of the day, the earth shaking, the temple curtain torn in two, a Roman guard crying out, certainly this was a righteous man. All of these wild events become confirmation to one nameless thief on the cross. He just made the best decision of his life. A guy who had done nothing worth remembering, who in, in his own words deserved the death penalty because of one decision, One belief, one simple confession in his last moments, a lifetime of mistakes washed away. This story gets recorded in the best-selling book of all time and has been told and retold as the ultimate example that no one is beyond the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. In The Thief on the Cross, I see three takeaways. The first is it's always the right thing to stick up for Jesus Christ, even when there is no apparent gain. The second Jesus will turn no one away who comes to him in humility and repentance, even someone who literally was mocking him minutes earlier. And the third, Jesus can redeem any mistake, any sin, any life, even if there's just one second left on the clock. As the soldiers come to kill the thief, I picture him dying with a little side smile on his face and the words of Jesus still ringing in his ears, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for the testimony of this one guy, God, who believed in you and got it right even at the end of his life. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Good evening. Please turn to John chapter 19. And when the, they were assigning the, um, the different statements, and I got the text, I got to assigned this one. And I, I've always stared at this and thought it was, it was odd. Uh, I don't think it's so odd anymore. It was always one of the, the one of the seven that I was like, but why is this here? It's in John chapter 19. Starting in verse 25, Jesus has been on the cross for a while now. And there it says Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, it's Mary, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, the three Marys. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. And so you have to remember that when Jesus was born, a lot of things took place in the temple. And one of the things specifically that took place in the temple when Jesus was young is found in Luke chapter 2, verse 35. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. Uh, But it's where Simeon, who is told, hey, before you die, you're going to see the salvation of Israel, you're going to see the Messiah. And so here, Mary and and Joseph come into the temple. They've got Jesus, and Simeon, he immediately spots him. He's here, and he holds him, and he praises the Lord. But then he says something very odd to Mary that at the time, I'm sure she had no idea what he was talking about. And it's there in verse, we'll start, I'll read from verse 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at the things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. And then in parentheses, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And so now Mary is probably remembering the words of Simeon to her, that morning and she's finally now understanding and coming to grips with what he meant by this son of yours is going to pierce your heart imagine you come to a baby dedication and zach's dedicating the baby and he turns to you and says oh by the way this kid is gonna ruin you he's gonna break your and but that's exactly what simeon did and at the time she didn't understand but now now standing at the cross she gets it And because there's no mention of Joseph, and I don't think that he would have missed this to support the family, a lot of scholars think Joseph's, he's dead. He's been dead for a while. And for some time, Jesus has been in some way, shape, or form supporting his mother as any good Jewish boy would, being the firstborn in the house. But now he's dying. He's fulfilling the mission his father set him on, which was to die on the cross, to make his father our father. That was the mission that Christ was on. Knowing that his mom was going to continue living, he needed to fulfill his duty as the firstborn in the family. Now, when you do that, normally you would do that with your brothers or your sisters, whoever the next one in line is. But they're not, either they're not there or maybe they are there. But the thing is, if you remember from Matthew chapter 12, they thought he was crazy. They were standing outside saying, hey, your brothers and your sisters and your mother are here to talk to you. And he said, who's my brother? Who's my sister? Who's my mother? Him that does the will of my father, that is my sister. That is my brother. That is my mother. And of all the disciples, they all scattered, one betrayed, 10 scattered, but there was one guy, the youngest disciple, by the way, who stood by and stayed with his master. And that was the disciple whom he loved, which is John. And he turns to Mary, and he doesn't call her mom, because imagine you're watching your son die, the pain that she must feel. If you said mommy or mom or mother, it would destroy her. So instead, he went with a term of respect and said, woman. And in that moment, he turns and points at John or nods to John, your son. And then turns to John and says, hey, this is your mom now. Church history tells us, well oh, I didn't look at the clock, wow. Um, we'll guess. We'll just do in a little estimate. Uh, church history tells us that Mary went on to live 11 years after that. So she stayed with John for 11 years. And I'm pretty sure she did because John wrote the book. And so John was very clear. Hey, did that disciple, by the way, because he, he spoke in this, he, he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, that disciple, took her in from that very hour. Jesus' brothers and sisters weren't saved at this point in time, according to what we know from church history. So why would Jesus pick John, the youngest disciple? Because he was doing the will of his father. He was sticking by the shepherd, his master. He he didn't go anywhere. He wasn't out betraying him. He wasn't out denying him. He wasn't on the road to Emmaus walking away in a a stupor of, oh man, what am I going to do now? My my life's a wreck. I've wasted three years. No, he's standing there. And you know what? When Jesus raises, Peter and John run. John gets to the tomb, looks in, and believes right there. Oh, it makes sense to me. This is the same John, the son of thunder, the one, let's call fire and brimstone down from heaven, Lord, and burn the city. This is the same John who was in the upper room when Jairus' daughter was raised. The same John that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. The same John that was brought closer to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They had this incredible relationship. And so Jesus said, you know what? If there's anybody that I know is going to take care of my mom after I'm gone, it's John. It's this guy. He's been with me through it all. And even now in my worst moment, there he is standing next to her. And see, we see this incredible thing unfold because what Jesus is doing on the cross is creating a new family. He he creates the family of God, the church, all of us. Look around you at all the different people in this room. None of them look like you. Different shapes, sizes, colors, everything. And yet, if we are in Christ, we're a family. And Jesus portrays that truth here for us. John had no relation to Mary or Jesus except that he was his disciple. And he was the disciple whom he loved. And he was faithful. Last one to die, too. John went all the way to the end. They tried to... At that, he, died a, he died on the island of Patmos. He just... Exile. Because they couldn't kill the guy. Wrote the book of Revelation. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And the apostle of John. Identified only as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And the disciple whom Jesus trusted with the care of his mom. Jesus dying on the cross... You just heard all the emotions, everything. He could have just sat there and died and know, even in death, Jesus providing for his mom and painting a picture for us that we have this incredible family because of him. Who is his brother? Who is his sister? Who is his mother? Those that do the will of his father. That is my sister. That is my brother. That is my mother. And here you have this truth, clearest day. And John gets the honor of taking care of Jesus' mother for the rest of her days. What, a, what an honor, what a job. All because he was found faithful. You know, it makes me think about my relationships and my own mom and, you know, I, I don't know that I would in the, in the I don't know. But man, Jesus set an example for us, and so did John. To be found faithful, to be found faithful, to be willing to do whatever it was in whatever situation, John identifying with Jesus could have been the next one. That's what all the disciples were afraid of. That's why they split. They didn't want to be part of what was happening to Jesus. But John was found faithful, and he was, ended up being the disciple whom he loved, and Jesus there providing for his mom, starting what would be the family of God all because of his death on the cross where he was there making his father our father. It's incredible. Thank you.
3: Please open with me your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. So the time is 8.31. Father, please, only you can do a miracle. (laughs) Help me to speak five minutes or less. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the statement that has been assigned to me is statement number four. And we find it there, Mark chapter 15, in verse 34. It tells us at the ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani which is translated my God my God why have you forsaken me the words of Jesus from the cross right here they're so hard that they wrote it in the original language in which he proclaimed it it's a hard word what is this saying so the first takeaway I want to leave with you is What he's saying is truth. As we come here tonight, as we think about the cross, we think about our Savior, it's good to see that from the cross, he is articulating truth. The truth is that life is geared because of sin that it breathes, it gives birth. It's like life produces circumstances where the emotion, the mood, the confrontation that we deal with is, I'm forsaken. If you're taking notes, the word forsaken is renounced. I've been renounced. Abandon is a word that means leave. Everything good has left me. It's a word that means quit. God, have you quit on me? It's a word that means dumped. I've been dumped. Life has circumstances for everyone that's here, anybody that's watching, sooner or later, you'll come to that point where you'll have to taste, drink, feel, think, experience, man, I've been forsaken. The young couple that says, not my baby. Why is my baby dead in the crib? They feel forsaken. The parents whose son gives them a call, mom, I'm arrested. What do you mean arrested? Mom, I'm guilty. I just killed someone. Forsaken. The young person that says, everybody's getting married. Left, right, in front of me, behind me. (laughs) I'm forsaken. Life is geared that sooner or later, you would experience that sense of forsaken. The spouse that has to deal with the fact of, what do you mean, cancer? What what do you mean they're going to die? Jesus here says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a true Fact that Jesus makes this declaration. I wrote this down. I didn't want to forget it. You know, truth is very important to God. In the Word of God, we're able to find what it says about truth. And there's a scripture that hopefully if I can find it, I'm going to try to share it with you. In the Psalms, chapter 34, verse 4, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. Psalm 51, verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden parts, You will make me to know wisdom. Jesus here truly made a declaration. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So some scholars look at this and they think that Jesus here is struggling. That in the struggles, Jesus is experiencing struggles many scholars know that what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting Psalm 22. Put a marker in your Bible. Go with me to Psalm 22. As you go into Psalm 22, we'll read it. It's a psalm that the disciples were familiar with. Jesus was familiar with. And so the question is, is Jesus struggling? As a man, of course he's struggling. But he's fully man, and at the same time he's fully God. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. In the night season, I'm not silent. But look at the declaration here. The psalmist is writing this, a messianic psalm, pointing to the cross, but you are holy You are enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. I stop again. I look to your eye. I hope you see this in the sense of forsaken. The truth we see here also, something that is so valuable. And that is that there's a testimony here Jesus is giving you and me tonight a testimony that I don't know what you're gonna go through. You don't know what I'm gonna go through. But the testimony is that if we get acquainted with the word, if we hide the word of God in our hearts, at the worst moments in life, Jesus, the first time he's separated from God the Father, it's the sin that separates us from God. God's ears not shortened that he cannot hear, his eyes are not blind that he cannot see. It's sin. And so Jesus here, he takes the sin of the world upon him, and for the first time, Jesus experiences a separation between him and Father God like he's never experienced before. And he has that sense of forsaken, but yeah, what does he do? He relies on the word. He professes the word. He thinks about the word. He chews the word. He digests the word. Hey, my brother and sister, when trouble comes to you, what are you going to do? What am I going to do? Here, this is a testimony. Verse 5, they cried to you and were delivered. Look at verse 5. They trusted in you and they were not ashamed. It's a testimony prophetically of the cross. I'm a worm. Jesus at the cross, he was feeling like the worm. Look at verse 7. They ridicule me. They were mocking Jesus. He trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him. Because of time, I can't go on. But here you're going to see that it even says they gamble lots. His tongue was stuck to, his, to the top of his mouth. We see truth. We see a testimony. Finally here, go back with me to Mark chapter 5, chapter 15, I'm sorry, verse 35 Those that stood by when they heard that, they said, look, he's calling Elijah. They didn't understand. He was quoting scripture. But then it comes to verse 37, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. There's a transition. I forgot what time I said. I want to try to finish at five minutes, so I'm going to stop. Let's do that transition. But let me leave you with this transition. When your life is on truth when you're able to let whatever you go through be an opportunity for you to give a testimony that God's not just with you on the good times. God's not just with you when you break the cake and you put it on each other. and God's not just with you when you have a promotion. God's not just with you when you start the ministry. God is with you when you get those phone calls. God is with you when you pray and you pray. And in some cases, there's life, but in some cases, There's death. God is still with you when you get married. When you're single, God is still with you. And in that testimony, there's that transition where you and I become a people that we're not just in it to win it. We're not just like what the world says. The truth is God is with us the very last statement of Jesus, you're going to hear it. He's able to give his spirit into his father because he wasn't forsaken. You're not forsaken. So, Father, we pray, help us to live in this. Bless the rest of the statements tonight. We come to you, Lord, because we need you. You haven't forsaken us. It's our sin that's caused wide separation between so many and you. Lord, may we repent. May we come back to you. We pray in Jesus' name.
4: John chapter nineteen, verse twenty-eight. Of the statements, I love I love this one because there's few statements that more uh, express the humanity of Christ. Um, In John nineteen verse twenty-eight, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished and that the Scripture might be fulfilled, he said, "I thirst." Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. It's an incredible thing to think about, the fact that the one who created the oceans and the seas, the one who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, the one that gave his thirsting people water to drink in the wilderness they drank from a rock, um, is now thirsty. He often used water as a, as a metaphor, a picture, picture language to describe his role here on this earth. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, it says that they drank of that spiritual rock that followed, him, followed them, and that rock was Christ. In John chapter 7, when they were pouring out libations for the sacrifice in the evening at the temple, Jesus cried out in the midst of a, fe- a feast when there was a lot of people there. It was more full than it is here. And he cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, uh, when he was by the well, speaking to the Samaritan woman, he said to her, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give to him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give to him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So he used this illustration, this example of water, because water gives life. You know, we read that he said, I thirst, and it's two words in the English, it's one word in the Greek. Um, And it says that he said this fulfilling scripture. First it says he said this knowing that all things were completed. It's an expression of his own need. It's something that I, I don't doubt many of us here at some point have said, I'm thirsty, and I'm thirsty, I'd like some water. And Jesus spoke that. But he spoke it after all things were completed he waited for the price to be paid for all of the suffering that needed to be suffered to be suffered so that we would be able to gain entryway into eternity before he addressed his own physical need he addressed the need of his mother he addressed the need of the world and then he said man i'm thirsty it's this twice that he was offered something to drink in the in the the hours there at the cross the first time they offered him uh, wine that was mixed with myrrh it was a very strong drink and it was an anesthetic and he refused it because he wanted to endure all the sufferings that needed to be endured in, other, in order for us to gain entry into heaven but here after he's finished that and they offer him sour wine to drink which would be like wine vinegar um, he accepts it because of his thirst it says it was fulfilling scriptures in psalm 22 verse 15 it says my strength is dried up like a pot shard and my tongue clings to my jaws you have brought me to the dust of death in psalm 69 verse 21 it says they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink and there was no record of him drinking anything since the last supper which was several hours before Um, he had been uh, wounded severely And uh, he had bled quite a bit, so he was very likely very dehydrated for him to be going through this. And to think of the fact that he was human, that he knew thirst, that he knew suffering, he knew affliction, he knew pain, is something that's an incredible comfort to me and to all of us. Because when we go through suffering, we don't serve a God that is removed from our suffering, far above there in the clouds, never affected, never touched by our pain He knows what thirst is. He knows what it is to be wounded, to be hurt, to be grieved, to be betrayed, to be abandoned, to be forsaken. And because he knows our suffering, it says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10, that it is fitting for him for for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus himself Uh, was a a high priest that understood our pain. He understood what it was to have the human experience, and he went through it for us. Uh, Spurgeon said, While we thus admire his condescension, let our thoughts also turn with delight to his sure sympathy. For if Jesus said, I thirst, then he knows all of our frailties and woes. The next time we're in pain or suffering, depression of spirit, we will remember that our Lord understands it all for he has had practical, personal experience of it. Neither in torture of body nor sadness of heart are we deserted by our Lord. His line is parallel to ours. The arrow which lately pierced thee, my brother, was first stained with his blood. The cup which thou wast made to drink, though it be very bitter, bears the marks of his lips around its brim. He hath traversed the mournful way before thee, and every footprint that thou leavest in the sodden soil is stamped side by side with his footmarks. Let the sympathy of Christ then be fully believed in and deeply appreciated, since he said, I thirst. And they gave him this uh, to drink. It's, It's worth noting that they put it on hyssop, because hyssop, was what in the law it was commanded that when you were going to put the uh, the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts, your brush would be a hyssop plant. You'd get the, the end of the hyssop plant and you dip it in the blood and you paint the doorposts. And now as he's coming to the end of his sacrifice and he's paid the price, they're taking that same plant, they're attaching it to a long stick and dipping it in gall for him to fulfill the scriptures. And it's being wet with the blood that's pouring from his forehead, from the crown of thorns that pierced his head. It's being wet with the blood of his wounds. And I wonder how many of the people that were there saw the hyssop being pulled back and thought, I just used something like this to put blood on my doorpost to show that I have had an innocent lamb pay the price for my guilty sins. And because that lamb suffered, I can live. Jesus was a human and he suffered as a human for us to be forgiven and to be made whole. Lord, thank you God for uh, suffering uh, thirst, Lord, for us, being just like us, Lord, knowing our our pain. And I thank you that you can have compassion on us in our suffering in Jesus name. Amen.
5: Good evening, evening. Buenas Noche. You know, I've had a verse uh, ringing in my mind and heart for the uh, last couple of days, just looking into um, the life of Christ, the cross, and it's uh, that verse that says, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. I don't know if you noticed it, but Amanda kind of prayed it over us as she closed worship. We are some loved people. And as we look at that cross, oh, man, may it do the work that it's intended for. But uh, John 19.30, the sixth statement I was given. It's the best statement, by the way. Just kidding. Uh, it's all great. So when Jesus had received the sour wine. I'm sending the timer here because I'm terrible with this. Where are you? There you go. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. They say these are the greatest words ever uttered on this side of eternity. They also say it's gonna take all of eternity to unlock and to understand all that was accomplished on that cross. It is finished. I don't know when you've seen the movies about the crucifixion and Christ on the cross, but these, not, these weren't words that were uttered out of defeat or out of despair or even out of duty. I had to do this. Not at all. These words were words and a declaration, a proclamation of triumph, of victory, of fulfillment, and of completion. We get a clue in Hebrews 2.12 when we're told, for the joy that was set before him, he endured that cross. See, he wasn't murdered. His life wasn't taken. He gave his life. The reason, there was a joy on the other side of all that pain and all that suffering. What is that joy? We'll take a look at that in a minute. But I think it's very key, very important to understand where all this began. Where did this start? Where did this plan initiate Genesis 2.17, we're told there, Adam actually was commanded by God. God told him, very specifically, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, God doesn't parent like we do. Hey, you do that again, you know, when I was with my kids. Hey, you do that again, and we never do nothing, right? No. God was serious about this, and sin is serious. Genesis 3, we have the account, right? There was an evil force, Satan, with his plan. He deceived Adam and Eve. They fell. Adam and Eve turned from God, right, for self-gratification. They left God's authority. They bought into Satan's lies. They disobeyed. And God was not kidding. He wasn't making light. When he said, you shall surely die. In that day, death came in. In that day, sin entered the world. Sin is a serious thing. We see it every day. Our our nation, it is in a sad state because it refuses to acknowledge sin. Romans 5.12 says, by one man entered into the world sin." And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. So we're all sinners. There's no escape. It's in us. It's innate. The natural man is a sinner. We're independent. We're rebellious. You know, if you don't believe it, next time you're in the 10 item line and you got 11, say, it's just 11. You know, that's rebellion. We laugh. But is it not rebellion? It's rebellion. We're all born contaminated, all sinners. And death comes in through sin and decay and deception and destruction. We're living it. And sin gives way to death. Physical death, man, it never gets easy saying goodbye to somebody, right? Never. And spiritual death, spiritual death. In that day, physical death began, the decay. And in that very day, separation, Pastor Raz mentioned it. Sin separates. You need a redeemer. You need a a redemption. It's a hopeless, it's a helpless condition. There's nothing we can do about it. I don't care how many books you read. I don't care how much you try. You cannot get rid of your sin. It has to be overcome. So Satan had his plan, right? The fall of man. But God had his fix. He has a plan of redemption. There was that motivated force of love that God started. How did he start it? First, he gives us the law, right? What does Galatians say? That the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. It's the law, when we look at the law, we go, you know, I got a problem. (laughs) I don't like the law. I like to do it this way. The law tells us, if we pay attention, the law tells us, I'm a sinner. I, I have this nature. We're sinners. Then he gave the prophets, right? Hebrew says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times, in many ways. God is communicating, you need me, you need God, you know. He's just, you know, with the megaphone of prophets. Then he gave us rituals and ceremonies, and then sacrifice, right? Blood shed, death, killing. I mean, if you read through the Bible, it's bloody, it's gutty, it's like, it's nasty. God was painting a picture that sin is serious, and he would fix it, but he would send a savior. So sacrifice, and God required animal sacrifice, and he was painting the picture of salvation. First Peter tells us he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but he was manifest in the last times for you. So now God since Jesus, He appeared for us. First Timothy, I'm a, I'm a Bible machine gun you right here. First Timothy 1.15 says, "Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That redemption plan. You had the law, you had the prophets, you had the animal sacrifices, the ceremonies. But now He was completing His plan of redemption through His Son, who is now appeared. Luke nineteen ten says, He came to seek and save that which was lost." He was redeeming the fall. 1 John 3, 5 says he was manifested. Again, he appeared to do what? To take away our sin. No longer cover sin like in the old, right? Old, uh, in the old testament, right? All those that, that just all those sacrifices, they just they didn't take away sin. It just covered. It was a band-aid. But God wanted better. His plan of redemption included taking away sin. And he gave us Jesus. Mark 10, 45 says, He appeared to give his life a ransom. We sang a song today. He gave his life as a ransom. In other words, he took your sin, he took your pen, and he gives your his righteousness to you. And that's what's happening here at the cross. Philippians 2, 6 says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of that cross. Emmanuel, God with us. See, he was not just a good man, he wasn't just a good example. That he was. It's revealing in John uh, chapter 19 as I was reading how he's, uh, Pilate is dealing with Jesus. And he brings him out. He finds no fault in him. Yeah, he's a good man. I find no fault in him. But, you know, the political thing that Pastor Joey mentioned, it, a lot of politics. And um, the politics is happening. So he's appeasing the people, right? The crowd. He brings him out. And get, guess how Jesus was presented by Pilate. Behold a man. You see, to Pilate, he was just a good man, maybe. That's all he was. To Pilate, just a good man. To most in that crowd, just a man. To many today, he's just a man. John 129 is very revealing because John said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's not just a man, he's God who humbled himself. He came to this planet. He suffered every rejection, every pain, every heartache, and more than we'll ever take on because God wanted to lavish his love upon us and redeem our fall and take away our sin. So we have the finished work here. John 17, Jesus said, I have finished the work that you have given me. Yes, he was obedient to Jesus, but it was the joy at the other side of that cross That helped him endure that cross, right? Not just obedience to his father, but his love for you, his love for me. The evangelist uh, Alexander Wooten was approached by a flippant young man. He didn't think his question too through much. And the evangelist could tell, this kid's not really serious, right? But the kid asked the evangelist, what must I do to be saved? And uh, evangelist Wooten said, it's too late. And he baffled the young man. He baffled him. And the young man said, no, for real, really, sir, really, no, really, what must I do to be saved? He goes, it's too late, it's already been done, the work is finished, just believe, that's all we got to do now is just believe, at his expense, Jesus finished the work of salvation and redemption. So that's the finished work, so what's the focus for us now, Right? I love John six twenty nine, where he, Jesus was asked, "What's the work of God? What do I need to do for God?" Guess what Jesus said. <laughs> John six twenty nine: The work of God is this, that you believe in Him who He sent. That's our work. Believe God loves you so much that He gave His one and only Son on that cross. That if you believe in Him, you'll have everlasting life. And for us who believe already, believe His Word. Let's believe His Word. He says, what can separate you? Can death, can life, nothing can separate you. Believe Romans uh, where He says, He's working all things out. He's working all things out for our good. doesn't matter what we're going through. Believe His Word. Believe, as our pastor taught us last week, that you are the salt. I am the salt of this world. I am the light of this world. Jesus has chosen us. We need to believe that he has us on a mission. Believe he's given you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you if you receive Christ. Believe he wants to use your life. And believe that he who began this good work in you, he is the one that's faithful to complete it. Amen? Amen. Let's do something fun on three. Let's do it is finished. Mean it. Mean it and thank God in your heart. One, two, three. It It is is finished. finished. And now I am too.
6: (laughs) Hey, family, turn with me to Luke chapter 23 as we take a look at the seventh statement of Jesus upon the cross. It's been said to me that Resurrection Sunday, this weekend, and Christmas are the Super Bowl of uh, church attendance. (laughs) Well, this Super Bowl is in overtime, all right? Um, Let's read verses 44 through 47, and it says there um, that now it was about the sixth hour. There was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Luke 23, verse 45, then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Verse 47, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. The seventh statement, there in verse 46, we see that these are the words with which he breathes out his soul. We see Jesus here once again cries out with a loud voice just one last time. And I got to think that he cries out with a loud voice so that the people might notice it. And so that we here tonight would take note of it. And he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. What he does is he quotes Psalm 31, verse 5. And what we can see there is that he shows us that he came to fulfill Scripture. And two, that he is reminding us of the importance of Scripture. This seventh statement on the cross, I want us to remember here tonight that Jesus He made this statement, being fully man, but fully God. You see, Jesus, he could have himself taken himself off the cross. He could have remained alive. But at this time, the work was finished. And the work was accomplished upon the cross. You see, Jesus, he chose to commit his spirit to his Father. And that word commit, it means to set before. It means to commend, to put forth his spirit, to commit it for the keeping of. He did that for me and for you. You see, with this prayer, Jesus yielded his living spirit to God the Father as he yielded his body To death on the cross. I want to say that again so that we would get it. With prayer, Jesus yielded his living spirit to God the Father as he yielded his body to death on the cross. And if we're not careful, we could focus in on just him yielding his body to death on the cross and miss the fact that Jesus yielded his living spirit to God the Father. see, as we quickly close up, Jesus, he gave up his life when he wanted to. He gave up his life for me and for you. No one took his life from him. He gave it up for me and for you, for all of us in this room. And in this final address, in this final statement, I want you to notice one last thing before Pastor Zach comes up and leads us in communion, that he addresses God as Father. He addresses him as Father, and he says, my God, my God. No, that's not what he says, right? What does he say? He says, Father, to you I commit my soul. I commit my spirit. I wanted to end with this quote. It says that when he was giving up his life and soul for us, he did for us call God Father, that we through him might receive the adoptions as sons and daughters. See, guys, that's what it's all about. That's what these seven statements are all about. He willingly gave up of his spirit, willingly gave up of his life for me and for you so that he may adopt us, so that he may give us that hope. Without him, we had no hope. But family, if we accept this as truth, we get to call him Abba. We get to call God Father. Let's pray and then Pastor Zach will come up and close us in communion. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to go through the seven statements. God, may that be said of us that we would call you Abba. Thank you, Papa, for being so good to us. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us upon the cross. In Jesus' name we pray.
7: Amen. The worship team can come up. If you have your Bible let's turn to Isaiah 53 Isaiah 53 And I encourage you, just as we read through this, as you hear the the we's and ours, just put your name there to, to take ownership, to realize what Christ has done on your behalf. Isaiah 53 verse 3 tells us, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities, and the chastisement for my peace was upon Him, and by His stripes I am healed." All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its cheers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin... And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Again, all that Christ did on our behalf, why was he forsaken by God? Why is that one of the few times in all of Scripture where he talks to God and he doesn't say, Father? He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, he took your sins. At that moment, it was my sins and it was the wrath of God being poured out. That's why he has to declare, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we, just like George mentioned, now we get to call him Abba, Father. We get to cry out to him as our father. We get to cry out to him as a perfect parent because of the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that Jesus at the last supper, he told his disciples to take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner also, he took the cup of supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the pastors, are going to come up front and we're just going to hand out the communion elements. And as we sing these two songs, just. Pray and consider. Maybe you read through Isaiah 53 one more time and take communion. Take communion. Take the bread, his body beaten and bruised for my sins. And then take of the cup how his blood was poured out to wash us white as snow. So Lord, we just thank you so much for tonight. Lord, we thank you for the reminder of the payment that you paid to save us, Lord to adopt us as sons and daughters, Lord. And if any of us don't know you, Lord, I pray that even right now we would cry out to you, Lord, even before we receive those elements, that we would cry out to you saying, Lord, I believe. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you were sent to die for my sins and my shame. And I believe you've resurrected and that you're the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we thank you for this great day, Lord, for this weekend and all that it means, Lord. But I pray, Lord, help us to not take this amazing grace, Lord, in vain. May the grace that you've bestowed upon each and every one of us, Lord, may it not be in vain, Lord. So I pray that you please bless our time together, our time of communion. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.